Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 210 Young Buddhist Vignettes. This week we speak with two young Buddhist practitioners about their understanding of how Buddhism works in their lives. We begin with Sophie McLaren, who studies in the Shambhala community, is 30 years old, and is the founder of Everybody. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So Sophie, one question we wanted to ask each of our guests during this episode is sort of how are you making sense of your Buddhist practice, all the study that you've done in the Shambhala tradition, how are you making sense of it right now in terms of the rest of your life? Well, I grew up Buddhist. I grew up in Shambhala. So they've kind of always gone together, my everyday life and my Buddhist practice. Particularly, you know, in the Shambhala tradition, it's very much about engaging in your everyday life, engaging in your world, and bringing mindfulness and awareness into just how you go about your daily activities in the world, particularly in the work that I do with everybody. I think also for anyone who's who's working in the not-for-profit world or has any sense of, of trying to be of benefit to the world, I think that some form of contemplative practice meditation or Vajrayana practice is really essential because it's cultivating clarity and stability of mind and it's cultivating our kind of natural wakefulness and compassion and opening our heart and mind so that we can basically be in touch with the world. And if we really want to do something helpful in the world, we first of all have to have awareness so that we can actually see the situation clearly. We can see what's going on. And then some wisdom to then know what to do about that. I mean, so often we you know, want to be helpful in the world or in a relationship with someone, and we just don't see clearly. We have some confusion, and, and we are unintentionally harmful or hurtful. So some level of awareness of what's going on, and then some wisdom of knowing then what is actually helpful for that situation. And then, of course, the compassion to allow oneself to be open to whatever situations we encounter, whether they're pleasurable or painful or something we don't want to experience in some way, like someone else's suffering, to be open to that and then want to do something about it, actually exert yourself in some way. So I think that for me, my, my practice is completely essential because I, I just want to you know do something helpful. And especially with everybody, that's kind of the point is creating opportunities for young people to practice and explore Buddhism. So I have to be clear that I'm listening to people what they want and, and then offering something that's helpful. And I find it really interesting that you've grown up with these sort of teachings around you since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I'd, I'd have, because that wasn't my experience, is just 
has your understanding of those things changed significantly over time or has it been just a consistent background type of thing that that you feel like you can rely on and then you've kind of grown into it or has it actually changed quite a bit as you've gotten older and really started practicing more intensively and doing you know more sort of formal things yeah that's a good question well you know we grew up meditating so wow <laughs> yeah so my that's interesting yeah, my parents, you know, were close students of Trungpa Rinpoche, and they were some of the first Buddhist students in the West, you know, in the 70s. And at that time, people, you know, started having children at some point, and then there was this question of, well, do we include them in our spiritual practice? And most people, of course, had left whatever tradition they'd been raised with. And, you know, my parents were both raised Catholic and both had sort of traumatizing experiences with that. And they certainly didn't want to force spirituality on us. But eventually they decided to introduce us to meditation practice because it's basically offering your children a tool for how to work with your mind and emotions. And so I grew up, you know, always we meditated together as a family. And I think the difference is at that time, Usually we didn't really want to, you know, we thought it was pretty boring and and all of that. But we we saw directly, we had our own experience of how it was helpful to us and how it was helpful to our family. And we saw that when we meditated together, we just had more harmony in our family and also for ourselves personally. So I've been fortunate in that I've always had that experience, you know. I've always understood how practice is beneficial to me, but now I, I actually want to do it more. <laughs> and my mom doesn't make me. <laughs> I, I get to the cushion by myself and I don't have to be bribed with M&Ms or whatever it is. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and shifting gears a little bit, because you mentioned this organization that you started and helped run, Every Bodhi. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, because this started, I understand, as a youth outreach program of the Shambhala system or the mm-hmm. Shambhala Center, I guess. What is it community? called? The Shambhala Community. Because uh-huh. there's a lot of different centers and teachers and it's a kind of an international system, right? Yeah, it's an international community of more than 200 centers around the world. Yes. Yeah. So this project started as a kind of youth outreach program of that bigger community. Yeah, particularly in Europe. Shambhala Europe in 2006 asked me to uh, move to Europe for a year and basically take care of the young people that we say Dharma brats, you know, the people that are raised, like me, (laughs) (laughs) um, raised in Shambhala at at all the European centers so that everybody had some path that was helpful to them rather than kind of assuming what would be helpful to children or teenagers or young people, actually talking with them and seeing what these different groups wanted and needed. So it started with taking care of the young people already in the Shambhala Europe community. And then it also turned into, well, how can we be uh, more open to other young people who want to explore Buddhism and meditation and are sort of looking for something but don't know how to connect? Mm. Nice. And at some point, it kind of spun off into its own thing. And you've yeah. l- helped lead a lot mm-hmm. of different um, retreats in Europe and gatherings of young people meditating and doing all kinds of things. And I wanted to ask, because you have that very interesting experience of working with so many people that are coming to meditation or interested in it, 
what you've learned about what people are looking for that are in that kind of age group? Yeah, I've gotten to learn so much. (laughs) Well, as I said, the original intention was that we were creating programming for the young people within Shambhala. And the surprise was that when we started creating retreats for young people in Shambhala, we started getting contacted by young people in other Buddhist communities all over Europe, and then tons of young people who weren't you know, affiliated with any particular sangha or tradition, but they were just, had been waiting for something to be offered to them that was sort of attractive to them, you know, that made sense for their lives. So... In that time, then we sort of had to start creating things that were helpful to a much wider group. And we've had now people come from more than 25 countries to the programs over the last four and a half years. And such a diverse group of people, as you can imagine, culturally different, they speak different languages, they come from all walks of life. And what I've noticed over this time from talking with these people and just kind of observing what they're interested in, you could basically sort of boil it down to saying that people are looking for ways of cultivating peace within themselves and peace in the world. That's sort of the common interest that these very diverse people have. And I think young people are certainly that come to my programs and that that I meet in in other Buddhist communities, oftentimes they're they're coming with some sense of, you know, they say, I'm I'm here because I'm stressed out in my life, or I'm working with depression, or I'm looking for something that makes sense, and something that basically just teaches me how to be in the world. And particularly, people are looking for then community. Mm that also wants that. And I think that's the biggest thing. We've done now almost 15 retreats in the last four and a half years. And at the end of the retreats, every single time, what people say meant so much to them is not necessarily the meditation and the Buddhist teachings, but it's the people, the connections that they made. And people say, I've never in my life felt like I could be who I am with a group of people and never felt like I had true friends until this experience. And I think that's really what people are looking for is some community that's a little bit more genuine than what we experience in our daily lives. Hi, my name's Wes Rosacker. I practice in the Zen tradition with a background in Advaita Vedanta. I've mostly practiced within the white plum lineage of Maizumi Roshi. I'm 30 years old, and I am in my last year of grad school at Naropa University in transpersonal psychology, doing my internship as a therapist. So Wes, um, tell me a little bit, because in this series of Buddhist vignettes with younger practitioners, I've been asking the question first, what is the relationship in your experience between all the Buddhist practice that you've done and the study and the books? How does that relate to the rest of your life? Because clearly you're spending most of your time not doing Buddhist study and practice. Like you have a big life outside of that. I sort of look at it from two angles. The first one being how I practice in everyday life. 
and the other one being everyday life as my practice. And that one has more of a flavor of everyday life is the way. And so I was going to just sort of touch on what I mean by both of those and how it shows up in my personal life because I, I just think that's relevant to relate it to me personally. So sort of currently with how my practice is in my everyday life is on one level just throughout the day, just giving recognition to right now what feels like a silence it's more of an absolute quality, so it's sort of an unmanifest, silent, timeless background rest. And it feels like sort of steeping as a tea bag in this just deep silence. And every few months it feels like a different word most relates to what I'm what the experience is and silence is what's fitting me right now. So I will just throughout the day just spend some time, even if it's 10 seconds, just giving recognition to what's always there. So yesterday I was in line and the line's pretty long at Chipotle. And I was just giving that recognition to just a timeless space. And when I do that, there's no seeking, there's no rush to get anywhere. There's just a rest. And I find that it quiets a large part of my neurotic energy in the day. It just really settles my system, my nervous system. And so I find that as like my daily practice. And then my sitting practice, I will do the same thing just for a more concentrated period of time. So 30 minutes in the morning or in the evening kind of helps me anchor for then that practice through the day. And I find that relieves a lot of my suffering is just actually having some contact to the absolute there's still a sense of separation in that. It it feels like more like opening the gateway to it rather than it being some deeply realized place. But even that, even just a little bit, feels like it goes such a long way. Just some element of being goes such a long way in daily life. So that's kind of how I look at my practice right now in everyday life. Then what I'm actually feeling more drawn to lately is everyday life as practice or everyday life as the way. There's something about that that's something that's coming more online more recently. I've spent years doing the first one I explained, and the second one is feeling more of a pull, and it feels more of a pull because it actually feels like it has a deeper quality of intimacy with my daily life, whereas in the first one it feels like kind of moving out of relative identification into some steeping in an absolute. And this one feels more like coming back into the relative that has a real deep intimacy with all things. There's like a love there and a joy there. And so I'm just naturally just feel pulled towards that as a direction. And what I will do for that as kind of a reminder is I will actually use a phrase like, and I get a lot of this from my Zumi Roshi's writings around my life just as it is, is the Buddha. And I will use that especially when I'm feeling resistance or frustrated around something like with this cold winter, 
I had to get up really early to take my girlfriend to work and I didn't want to. And I had this like ice scraper and it was really cold and I couldn't find my gloves. And and I was just like this sense of like, I don't want to do this. It was like almost a sense, I don't even want to be alive right now. And then the phrase would just come into my head. This is the life of the Buddha right here and right now. And when that came into my head, it just sort of shifts my orientation. Like, where even if the resistance is there, there's an intimacy with the resistance and it's okay. And then I went down and scraped the car and there was something intimate about doing that. Something intimate about the cold in my fingers. It relates the Zen teachings for me around closing the gap or becoming one with when sad, be sad, when hungry, eat. Closing the gap between what I think my life should be and what it is. That's what I'm finding where the real juice is for me personally. And I wanted to quote a Maizumi Roshi line from the book, Teachings of the Great Mountain, because I felt like it spoke to what this thing that's starting to emerge, that's, that's, that it feels like having had a glimpse of it in the past and having small glimpses now, it has like a great faith that this is true, that my life as it unfolds is the life of the Buddha. How could it be anything else? I don't mean it in like a, um, in a way where we're not also, our life is not the Buddha because there are ways where there's some debris in the way, but there's something about it that really resonates for me. Okay, the chapter is The Land of No Yin and Yang. Maizumi Roshi says, Whatever painful situation you are involved in, consider that as the very life of the Buddha the very state of nirvana itself, and be it. Just live that life. It doesn't matter whether it is life or hell, life of the hungry ghost, life of the animal. It's okay. Just live that life, see? And as a matter of fact, no other way. Where you stand, where you are, that's what your life is right there. Regardless of how painful it is, or how enjoyable it is, that's what it is. And there's something in particular for me around Mizumi Roshi's writing where almost in every chapter I read or every talk he gives, he's always pointing back to, you are the Bodhisattva, your life is the Buddha's life. And there's something so beautiful about having that message given to me. There's a way where In the moment, seeking stops. There's a moment where there's just an appreciation for my life. And so there's a way where I just, I just feel such a gift to be mirrored that back to me. So yeah, that's what I'm most passionate about right now. Cool. Thank you. And the next thing, because I wanted to also with each of the guests on this episode, ask them more specifically about what they're doing in their lives and how the sort of recognition of this life is the Buddha's life, how that actually comes into some of the specific things that you're passionate about. So as you mentioned in the introduction, you're becoming a therapist right now. You spent several years both as a client and now starting to become a therapist in your own right. And I know that this is a topic that you're really interested and passionate about. So I wanted to hear maybe a little bit about how you see these two domains, if we could separate them out, one 
being therapy and the kind of psychological health and growth and healing. And then the other, this sort of Buddhist practice, this recognition of wholeness, the seeing that this life is the Buddha's life, everything as it is, is okay. Um, maybe if you could share some thoughts on how these things have been related um, in your experience. Yeah, I'm really passionate about this topic and have definitely spent a lot of time thinking about it and journaling about it and trying to make sense of my experience and bring these two together. What works the best for me, and I don't know if it comes from Maizumi Roshi, but but I would hear Genpo Roshi talking about it when I was in Utah studying at Kanzayon Zen Center was he would often say that Maizumi Roshi would tell him, your life is whole and complete just as it is, and there's a lot of work to do. And that framework is what I bring in as a therapist in my internship, is really holding that as my container, and not just as a theoretical position, but as a lived reality, where when I'm sitting with someone, I can have the experience of seeing their sort of innate perfection, or that they that they are whole and complete, just as they are in the room with me in that moment, and also seeing that there's plenty that can be clarified, and that also wants to be clarified so that they can have a more more love in their life or more enjoyment. And, and it's amazing to see how much can get clarified, but it just feels like this embracing both the relative and the absolute. And that, in my opinion, both are paramount for like real therapeutic health, because I feel like one without the other, and you get these weird one-winged birds. I think what I also want to say is that my first therapist was a Dharma era of Adyashanti, who's sort of like a mix between Zen and Advaita Vedanta. And she was within the non-dual wisdom and psychotherapy movement. And so a lot of our work was giving recognition to the unconditioned awareness and then being able to bring that awareness into whatever is contracted in the body-mind. What I found was that by starting to open up and awaken to just basic awareness or basic space, there was a way where I was less threatened by the psychological material that was coming up, sort of like a Robert Keegan subject-object relationship where as I moved from self as subject to being able to rest further back and see the self in a more impersonal way, there was a lot of things that I could start to admit that was going on within my personal psychology that I couldn't admit when I was totally identified as my personal psychology because it was too threatening to my self-image. So different things around power dynamics or arrogance or competitiveness or different sexual energies were all things that I could finally start to come to terms with and start to admit and work with because of that distance. And with that, I also want to say that with some quality of just basic space or awareness, there was a way where there was a bit more courage to go into charged emotional material because I had the sense that there was a part of me that was untouched by it. And so I felt like I could go into it more. Like there was a way where it was like, it's okay to go into this deep grief because I have in my experience a sense that it's not, it can't defile what 
is deepest in my experience. And with that, it was also a shadow of just hiding out in that unconditioned place because it felt so good. So there was, there was a way where I, it was also a cul-de-sac, but on the positive, it gave me the courage to go more deeply into the emotional experience. So that was a strong part of like my non-dual wisdom and psychotherapy experience. As I've moved forward, I've just gotten more into just all different kinds of modalities that aren't necessarily transpersonal in nature. And in my opinion, there's just certain things that the therapeutic work addresses and touches that my spiritual practice didn't. And one of the things that I'm most passionate about lately that I'd like to say something about is just within second person relationship. And I found that a lot of my spiritual practice related to first person experience. And I just have found that there is certain wounding or injury that happens in relationship. My idea is that it requires relationship to heal it. And I don't feel like in an absolute sense that's always the case, but I'm starting to feel like there's actually specific avenue of healing that happens in relationship that's not necessarily available to just do on my own, on the cushion going in, or as I'm around town exploring my, why does this person bother me? Or what's my shadow I'm not owning with this person? That what I'm looking at now around attachment theory, just that it actually requires the relationship. And so that's something I'm sort of making a distinction lately. So I don't feel as much of necessarily that my spiritual practice is intermingling as much with that. It feels more just sort of specifically the psychology. And I'm really enjoying that work. The only other thing I would just add is um, with working with people, having some element of that you're whole and complete as you are, and there's a lot of work to do. I find that I don't necessarily have to explain that explicitly to the client. I find that even just a sense of working on accepting what is, like there's like, oh, I'm so angry today, and they have some kind of spiritual idea that they shouldn't be angry, that even just sort of facilitating them accepting that they're angry, that in itself brings some quality of being, or it relaxes seeking, that it doesn't have to be different than how it is, And I find that to be really helpful with regards to kind of relaxing what I see happening when this quality of inherent perfection isn't in the room where we get into, and I'm still in some ways doing this, but just coming to see it more and more, is that we get into some sense that if I do enough personal healing that I'm going to reach some imaginary finish line where I feel whole and complete. And that hasn't been my experience. My experience is that I find that whole and complete quality within the absolute and that within the, the relative, it's always emerging and evolving and there's always more to clarify. So part of why I think it's so important to blend the two is that it helps relax this future finish line of personal growth that people get really worked up by and and it causes a lot of suffering and 
not appreciating life as it is now. So that's why I just feel like it's so important to bring them together. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.